Okay, um, you should have two outlines on your tables. Um, we made a little bit of an adjustment. I told you we might, and we did. Um, the, uh, so, so even if you have what you brought from last week, if you would like a little bit more um, filling out of the notes, they're on there. So you may want to grab last week's week one. And we will try to finish that and at least get started is the plan with week two. So you want to be, you want the notes that say week one right now. That's what you're going to need. Then open your Bibles to the book of Genesis and chapter number three. If you would turn to Genesis three and I will not do this every time, um, but I do think that at least this first time or two, I want to give a little bit of review so we know where we have been. So last week, um, and I'll be on your notes, actually. Uh, I'll just probably highlight things that are on your notes. Um, this broader study that we are tackling on Wednesdays has to do with the Old Testament um, you can see in your notes there are 39 books in the Old Testament, 30 authors at least, and it is written uh, in its entirety in the Hebrew language. Um, the Old Testament is divided into five groupings we talked about last week. We are dealing with the first grouping, which is the Pentateuch. Penta means five, tukas means scrolls. So the five scrolls are the five first five books of the Bible, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses is the very likely author of the Pentateuch. Um, the book of Genesis is often divided a couple of ways. Um, some divide it by looking at the first 11 chapters, calling it the primeval history. And then chapters 12 through 50 being the ancestral history. We are following an outline um, that, that really are a division that, that I like that Walter Brueggemann did. And that is dividing it into four. That is prehistory that we're talking about in lesson one. This is all organized around the concept of the call of God. So the prehistory would be the sovereign call of God. Then the Abraham narrative, which we will start today, hopefully, the embraced call of God. And then later on, the Jacob and the Joseph narratives as well. We began last week talking about the prehistory, the sovereign call of God. And all we did was talk about creation, chapters 1 and 2, uh, beginning with those words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We went through the sequence of creation, uh, what God did on every one of the first six days of creation. And um, I outlined that for you. And then on day seven, God rested from the work which he had done. Um, one of the things that I underscored and really made a point of saying is that man is the focal point of God's creation. Uh, he's the, the kind of the crown of God's creation. <clears throat> and the, the creation narrative really focuses around um, humanity. And we talked about how that everything else God spoke into being, or as Joe Jackson pointed out to me last week, um, God did make the animals from the dust. But what separated the animals from humanity, of course, was that God breathed into humanity uh, the breath of life and he became a living soul. So uh, humanity is the, the crown crown jewel of God's creation. I talked about a few issues of creation. Uh, one, that the biblical narrative is distinct from all or unique from all other religions. We talked about what the biblical creation narrative is not. It's not an uh, argument for the existence of God. It's not an attempt to answer every scientific question. But it is a proclamation of God's creation power. Uh, it is a revelation of the origin of humanity where we came from. And it is a demonstration of God's order and God's purpose. 
And then I shared with you four views of creation, um, or not four, several views, five, I guess, in all. Uh, One is the gap theory. That is that uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and then Satan fell and destroyed the heavens and the earth. And then beginning in verse uh, number three, God begins to recreate. That gap theory would help us explain why scientists say the earth is billions of years old when the Bible seems to teach a 6,000-year earth. Although, let me make a point here. We don't eat um, that whole, we, we repeat it all the time that the Bible says it's 6,000 years old. Um, I, I can't remember his last name now. Uh, I want to say Bishop Charles, but I'm not sure that's right. Um, years and years ago, went through the begats and um, figured up that's that's where we get our six thousand years. He went through all the begats and and figured out what a generation looks like and said it, it looks like about six thousand years. Problem with that is that begat does not necessarily mean son; it just means a relative of. So, in other words, um, we are assuming that every name is listed. It could be one out of every 10 names. So there could be many, many generations and just an occasional mention because a begat does not necessarily mean um, that. In other words, I could say, uh, this might be a little awkward, but I, I could say I begat Amos in the, in the Hebrew. I could say that. Um, and, and even though Kyle is my son and Amos is my grandson, that would still fit the meaning of the Hebrew word begat. So we're not sure how many are skipped. So it really could be far more than 6,000 years old. But the gap theory, uh, some really like because it helps explain the gap um, in, in age. Secondly, uh, some people believe that God created the, uh, the, the earth with age. That is just like we believe that Adam was not created a baby, but probably... Um, a 54-year-old balding, um, stocky gentleman um, with a beard, exactly, yes, and wireframe glasses. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so, but just as he created Adam with age, he could have created the earth with age, and we don't know what age he created it with. He could have created the mountains looking like they were 20 billion years old, and that would be God can do whatever God wants to do. So um, some believe that that's the explanation for uh, an earth that seems to be so old. Others believe that, that the day is a metaphor. It didn't really mean a literal day. Others believe in the day age theory. That is, since the Bible says a day is like a thousand years with a day with man is like a thousand years with God, that it, it could be much, much older because we think in 24 hour days, God may be thinking a whole different time frame altogether. And then there are those who believe in a literal um, six-day, 26, 24-hour day creation. By the way, these mix and match. Many people who are gap theorists believe that there was a huge gap and then God created in six 24-hour days. So it's not you don't have to pick one and leave the others. But those are the the various theories um, concerning creation. And then I ended with four lessons uh, of creation. Number one, God is not, God is one, not plural. There's not multiple gods. There's one, but he exists in the form of a trinity and always has. Secondly, we, we really hit this hard. There's a big distinction between the creator and the creation. He is the creator and we are not. All right. So we are not on God's plane. Neither is any of God's creation. Thirdly, God is moral and holy. In other words, God has the right to say, you can't eat of this tree. He has the right to do that because he's holy. And, and the fact that he's moral means there is right and wrong for God. And then fourthly, we ended with humanity is distinct from all of creation. Um, he created us male and female. We were created to subdue, but our freedom is limited. We do have freedom. God gave us freedom but that freedom is limited. Now, we're going to move to the second portion of this first lesson, and we're going to look at chapter 3. And again, we are not diving deeply in the weeds, all right? But I will answer any question. You may have a question that has to do with the weeds, and I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. But our goal here 
is to be able to understand the Bible as a whole. And so we're kind of, we're flying above about 30,000 feet above and trying to see how the picture works together. So the fall of man, which is, as I say in the notes, the most crucial happening in man's relationship with God. Uh, This was the drastic change that took place as a result of man's disobedience. I really need you to just look back at verse 16 of chapter 2. And God said... Uh, The Lord commanded man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there is a promise um, that you can eat of anything, but there's also a warning. If you eat of this one tree, you will die. So we get to chapter 3, verse 1. So the serpent's in the garden, and the serpent is more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said to you, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So immediately the serpent is questioning what God said. Let me just pause for a moment. Is that not our culture today? God really mean that? Did God really write that? Was that not not just a bunch of humans that wrote that? Questioning the authority of the word of God. Satan says, did God really say that? Um, and he said to the woman, um, did God really say that when he said, you cannot eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruits of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, don't eat or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the temptation goes like this, eat it, you're not going to die reason he doesn't want you to eat it is when you do, you're going to be like him. You're you're going to have all the wisdom of the earth, and God doesn't want you to be like him. And so Eve ate it. And we won't read all the text. She ate it. She shared it with Adam. And their eyes were open. Their eyes were open to their nakedness. Um, And it was more than just, and it was literally, I believe, a physical nakedness. But they now realize that they are spiritually naked. They have now disobeyed God and he is holy and they cannot come into relationship with him. And so what did they do? They hid themselves. Again, 6,000 years ago or 20 billion years ago, whenever this happens, some things never change. What do we do when we're not living right for God? The last thing we do is read the Bible go to church or get around people who the presence of God lives in who might make us feel bad and we hide. And so Adam and Eve hid and they covered themselves, of course, with what? Fig leaves. Um, I I don't want to overdo this connection, but um, do you remember the tree that Jesus cursed? It was a fig tree that had leaves but no fruit. The implication is um, that the leaves said something about the tree that was not really true. That is, the leaves said, oh, this is a healthy tree. But it was covering up the fact that the tree was not bearing fruit. Same thing Adam and Eve did. The leaves said, we're covered. But God exposed that. It really wasn't covering anything. They couldn't cover their own sin. And so they hid. God said, where are you? Well, we hid because we were naked and we were ashamed. And God said, who told you you were naked? And they, our eyes are open once we ate. And so you know the story. Let's read verse 14, though, um, of chapter 3. The Lord said to the serpent, this is the curse. He said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity um, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, some of you will have Bibles where seed, the second seed, is capitalized, right? You may want to underline that, because this is um, the first declaration, I believe, of the coming of the Messiah, one who is going to set things right. God said to the serpent, you have done great damage here. And there's always going to be strife between your seed and the seed of the woman. Um, He, 
the seed of the woman, will bruise, some translations will say, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, to the serpent, you will do some damage to the seed of the woman, but ultimately he will be the victor because he will damage your head. This is a prophetic word that a day is coming. Really, it's speaking of the cross. It's going to look like you've done quite a lot of damage. You're going to bruise his heel. But ultimately, he's going to come out of the tomb and crush your head. And so um, this is the first prophecy of the Messiah that is to come. And then he goes on in verse 16, and um, God curses the woman. Um, Ladies, this is the reason there is pain in childbirth is because of the sin. Um, And there is a relational problem, strife always between men and women is prophesied here in verse 16. Um, And then Adam is cursed as well. Um, And it's all of humanity. We now have to work. Um, And it's not that work is the curse. It's that work is hard and it makes us sweat and it's not easy. And we have to pull weeds and, and all of that is part of the curse. So God places his curse on Adam and Eve and the serpent. And then look at verse 21. And also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. Where did he get skin from? Obviously an animal was killed, which means those skins were probably soaked in blood. What a powerful picture already of the necessity of blood to cover the sin of humanity. And so God says, you're you're cursed. You're going to have some struggles now, but I'm going to cover you. And God makes the first covering for the sin of humanity um, and covers them with skin. And then in verses 22 through 24, the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put his hand out and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove man, he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned everyone to guard every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, here's what happens. So God has them covered in skin. But God says we got to get them out of the garden. Because if they meander over there now and eat the tree of life, they're going to live forever. But they're going to live forever in a sinful state. They would, If they ate of the tree of life in the sinful state, they would stay in a sinful state forever. God had a plan and he was going to redeem humanity. And so he drove them out of the garden, not as an act of judgment, but as an act of mercy so that they could not eat of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state because God's destiny for us is not to live forever in a sinful state. It's to redeem us completely, give us new bodies and for us to live completely glorified, completely holy and perfect in his presence for eternity. But had Adam and Eve eaten of the tree of life, they would have lived in that sinful state forever. So God kicked them out of the garden and put an angel, a cherubim, to guard the way to the garden so that they could not find their way back in and eat of the tree of life. And so it was an act of mercy that he sent them out of the garden. Michael? So was the garden there until the flood? I would assume... Yeah. I would say that makes sense that it was there. I don't think scripture says, but I think that would make perfect sense that it was there until uh, the garden or until the flood came and destroyed it. It does, but in the new heaven and the new earth and Eden and the river of life. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the hope that is in front of them is the Genesis three fifteen um, promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. This is the promise, and you need to know that. One of, the, one of the keys to understanding the Old and the New Testament is to understand this concept of the seed. And, and so I want you to get that in your thinking. This is the first promise of the seed that is going to come. Not seeds, the seed, the seed of the woman, um, which we know, the seed of the woman, the, the seed that the woman carried, Uh, is the Messiah. Uh, That which is conceived in you, Mary, is of the Holy Spirit. They not come from man. God planted it in 
in you. And so this, this is key to really unlocking the New Testament as well. A couple of things here. Um, I want you to notice the creative power of God's word in, in the creation narrative. Uh, he spoke it and it came into existence. But notice also God's hope-giving power um, in his word. Um, Not only could he speak and creation came, but he could speak and hope came. There is going to be enmity between your seed and, and her seed but her seed is going to ultimately win. And so, so the word of God not only has creative power, but it has hope giving power as well. Now the failure of humanity here in the fall is now followed, um, by a promise. Let's go to chapter four and, um, we're going to see the experiences of Cain and Abel will reveal the consequences now of this fallen state. Chapter 4 begins with what seems to be a word of hope. Adam knew his wife, and and the word no here is sexual relations, and so they uh, were intimate, and she conceived, and she bore Cain. And she said, you hear hope here. I have acquired a man from the Lord. So there, there is this failure is followed by this hopeful promise. Um, then if you read the text on, and we're not going to read all of this because we uh, will never get through the Bible if we read every verse in the Bible. So I'm just giving you the big picture. So you know the story. So Cain is born and also he has a brother that is born. And his brother's name is Abel. All right. And the, the day comes that they both are worshiping. They are both giving a sacrifice to God. Verse 3, came in, it, it, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord and also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord, or Abel, I'm sorry, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, I want to suggest to you, before we try to figure out, I mean, if you just read it, and you read it quickly, it it seems like Cain got a pretty bum deal on this, because there are no instructions given that we see. It wasn't that God said, hey, boys, both of you go and kill an animal, and uh, bring me an animal, and... Cain disobeyed. Now, maybe that's the case, but it doesn't indicate that that is the case. So I, I want to suggest to you that there, there's probably, it's probably, it, it, notice the way it's said, and God respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. I think the issue is not what the offering was. The issue was their heart. God saw the heart of Abel and it was toward him. God saw the heart of Cain. Now, maybe, maybe the heart um, gets demonstrated by Cain taking a shortcut and bringing fruit. I don't know. But let's not try to read into it something that's not there. All we know is that God, how, how many believe God knows the hearts of everyone? All right. So what we do know from the text is God saw a difference. There was a difference. Listen, um, and and I I, want to make sure that I clarify this. The lifting of one's hands does not make worship. That's not the only way to worship, right? But here's my point. There could be Rick and Dennis could be standing side by side on Sunday morning during worship. And they could both have their hands up the same way. And they could be responding in the way that everybody sees in the very same way. And God may know that one of them is sincere in their worship and one is not. Okay. So I think that's the issue we're talking about here. Um, Dennis, you think that, that you're the one that's sincere, right? <laughs> Rick, my money's on you. Okay. I just <laughs> okay. Go ahead, Rick. Whereas, whereas the other offering was the 
I, I, I understand, and I feel like I've been taught that too. I'm sure I've heard that over the years. Here's the problem with that. We're reading back into it something we know on this side. And so we read about sacrifices in the, you know, in, in Exodus and Leviticus. They didn't have Exodus and Leviticus. And we're not told that God gave them those instructions. It may very well be. God may have sat them down and said, I'm going to tell Moses later and he's going to write it down. But for you, here's... And so, and that I'm not arguing that point. My point is that God saw there was a difference of heart. One was obedient and sincere. One was disobedient and insincere. It may have been that. The text just doesn't say so. Um, but there's clearly a difference. We do know this. God was not, I know this. I'm not sure that all Calvinists would agree with this, but I don't think it was eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Well, we'll choose Abel, Cain, you're out. I don't, I think there was a substance of the heart. God knew the difference. And so Cain and his offering, it wasn't just his offering. It was Cain and his offering were rejected and Abel and his were accepted, which ticks off Cain. You know the story. Uh, As a matter of fact, so ticked off that instead of making things right with God, he kills his brother. All right. And, um, Mm -hmm. gave him, gave him up. Yeah. Gave him, gave him. Absolutely. Absolutely. But he was not interested in writing a right. He tried to do it the same way we do it. And that's ourself. And so he just took it. What we tend to do is push away that reminder of our sin instead of making it right vertically. He tried to fix it horizontally. Think if I kill Abel, I'm okay. It didn't work. And you're right. God gave him the opportunity. Yeah, he would. Uh, he Cain had a talk with him. I mean, God had a talk with Cain to show him what, what to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. It wasn't that if you're right and you're wrong and go. I mean, God right. reached out to make it right. Yes. And like he does with us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. But he did not respond. Instead, right. took matters Just in his. Like many people today. Correct. Yep. Cain's family, um, as we would suspect, goes south. All right. Cain is the leader and uh, his family follows in his footsteps. And, and what we read in verses 17 through 24 is kind of a, a, a genealogy or a, a layout of Cain's um, ancestors. It's a long passing of time. But I do want you to notice a couple of things in verse 19, chapter 4. This is a descendant of Cain. We have the first polygamist, all right? Uh, Then Lamech took for himself two wives, and the name of one was Adah, and the name of the second was Zillah. So this is the first time, this is Cain's descendants. This is the first time. Now notice again how quickly we are getting away from the ideal of the garden because they sinned, kicked out of the garden, their son sins, his family spiraling out of control. This is culture today. You, you, one compromise leads to another. And so by verse 19, we have the first polygamy. By verse 23, then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. So now Lamech is not only a polygamist, but Lamech following the lead of Cain, his ancestor now is a murderer. And so we see the spiral of humanity beginning uh, all the way in chapter four. Now, let me pause for a moment and answer, not answer, um, throw out the question that uh, some like to ask. Um, and I'll just ask it so we don't get derailed. Who did, who did Cain marry? Does anybody ever want to know who Cain married? Does, okay. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Again, keep in mind the word begat does not mean your son. It could mean your great, 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 great grandson. And so all the blanks aren't necessarily filled in. So who do you think Cain married?
Well, I mean, that'll answer the other question. Where did the women come from? Where do you think the women came from? Okay. Anybody want to? Bev? He had to marry his sister. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Adam and Eve obviously had daughters. Yeah. And um, there's just simply no way around it unless we want to have another creation story that happened in another part of the world and they migrated together. So, I, I mean, it just... I've never heard that theory, no. I, no, I, I'm not sure what one's theory would be if they don't take the obvious that he married his sister. Uh, unless you just discount scripture. That, that might be the more likely approach that some would take. Spencer? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I think that, again, that's why not having all the blanks filled in is important to understand. Um, one of the things, I don't know if we'll get to it today, but, but I'm going to show you how the scripture gives big picture, but it continues to funnel in because it's really one story. And so even when we get to the flood and Noah has three sons, he's going to tell you about Ham and Japheth quickly and give you their genealogies. Then he's going to take off with Shem and the whole story emerges from Shem. It's kind of the same thing we have here with Cain. Tells you a little bit about Cain and then he's going to focus on Seth because Seth will lead us to Abraham and, and so um, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of children being born, a lot of sisters. And I think we just have to accept the fact um, that, that um, Cain married his sister. Um, Abel, um, the Bible says that Abel, let me make sure I get my, um, yeah, Adam had Seth. That's your point, Spencer. Adam had Seth at the age of 130. And he lived to be 930. All right. So this is before the flood. Um, I can't imagine having a child at 130 now. I'm just going to say, all right. Um, I can't have, imagine having one at 54. But, but he had Seth at 130. And, and we'll just assume um, that he and Eve had a few more in the next 800 years. Okay. So he, he, um, could have had many and sons, many sons and daughters. Um, and there would have been no degenerative effects from what we would say was incest. That would not have even been, uh, prior to the flood and, and, and prior, prior to all the different mutations and all of that. So we just have to accept that, that he married and then go on. So when to answer that question, so we get then to, okay, so we have Cain and Abel, Abel has been killed. We have Cain. His family history is given. And then there is a hope of renewal in Seth. Look at chapter 4 and verse 25. Um, Chapter 4, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed, look at this, another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth... Um, to him also a son was born named Enosh and men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so uh, there is new hope that emerges with Seth. And so when you read through chapter four, chapter five, you get Seth's lineage. And then we get to chapter six. There is again hope in this next big player in the Old Testament. And that is Noah. Um, We go to chapter five and uh, verse Number um, 28, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, this one, listen to the hope of the people, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And so there's a sense that in Noah, Noah is going to be their answer. Again, what I want you to see is all the way from the garden and still till now, 
people are saying there's one coming that's going to be our answer. And so there was even a, a, um, a flicker of hope in Noah. I want to read chapter 6, um, the first few verses uh, of chapter 6. came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. We'll talk about that in just a moment too, that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And that's just saying, God is just saying, I'm going to judge the earth, but I'm going to wait 120 years before I do it. There's 120 more years before the flood will come, basically, is what he's saying. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. They were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. He walked with God. And he begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right, there's a lot of stuff here um, in those 10 verses. <clears throat> Let's uh, look at verse um, 2. Verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And then look at verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Um, all right, so how do we, what do we do with that text? Um, sons of God married daughters of men. Let's, let's, let's get what we do know. When the sons of God had relationship with the daughters of men. We'll talk about who they are in a moment. But when the sons of God had relationship with the daughters of men, a race of giants, according to the text, were birthed. Men of renown. Um, unusually large, great, strong men is what this appears to say. So who were the sons of God and who were the daughters of men? That's the million-dollar question. Um, some believe, and I'll, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll give you the different ideas and then we will, um, try to land somewhere. We'll probably all land different places, but some believe that the sons of God were angels and the daughters of men, um, were simply human. And that is not, that by the way, is not a minority way out left field opinion. Uh, that has been probably um, probably the opinion of most evangelical scholars, at least over the years. There are many places, we won't take time to read them, but I could cite you dozens of places where angels are called the sons of God. Uh, as a matter of fact, when Job, in the book of Job, when he is recounting the creation, he talks about the sons of God shouting for joy when they watched God in, in creation. So there are many that believe, um, there are many believe that what occurred was a race of giants that came from intercourse between angels and human women. Now, um, before we write that off completely as just too bizarre, um, keep in mind that the problem that we will get to in Genesis 11, and, and to be very honest, the problem we get, we start with in Genesis 3, is that humanity never seems to be satisfied with being human. Um, why did Eve eat of the fruit? Because she's going to be like God. Why did they build the Tower of Babel? We want to build a tower into the heavens 
so we can be like God. So the sin of these first 11 chapters, by the way, that's the sin of Satan. I want to ascend into the heights. Um, The sin of the first 11 chapters is humanity trying to be something they're not, trying to be the creator. Romans 1 would indicate that the real problem of culture even today is that we worship and serve the creature more than the creator. In other words, there's a melding together of the two. So um, I do not think that it is beyond the possibility um, that what happened was that, that the fallen angels inhabited the earth and they were in a form that was visible and the women had relations with them and the, this giant uh, race was born. I do not think that is an incredible out of the possibility um, theory. I think that is, it is, I think, pretty plausible when you consider the real issue that was going on. Keep in mind later when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, um, the, the, the visitors... Um, the angels that will come down and be staying in the home of Lot, angels that are coming to rescue, there will be homosexual men outside the door wanting those angels. So this is a, this is a problem. Um, again, the problem is humanity not being satisfied with being humanity. All right, that's one of the theories. Second theory is that the sons of God were the dynastic the rulers of dynasties, um, and the sin here is polygamy taking many wives. I think that's a pretty lame possibility, but some have have posited that. Um, The other one that is, I think, maybe equally plausible to um, the angels is that, that some believe that the sons of God is the godly line of Seth, um, Seth was the godly one. And so the sons of God would be the, um, the godly line or the godly seed and that they were having relations with the ungodly line of Cain. Um, and that when it says the sons of God married the daughters of men, that this is what is, is being referenced. Um, I, I could I could accept that, but I, I'm not going to reject the the angels and humanity. I think that is just as plausible. Um, I'll let you talk or ask questions here in just a moment. Here's what we do know. All right, and you may want to jot these things down. What we do know um, is that we cannot be dogmatic. The Bible doesn't say for sure. All right, it's not going to affect our salvation either way. Can't be dogmatic. Secondly, um, the stimulus of the story, regardless of which version you take, the stimulus of the story was that the daughters of men were attractive and lusted after by the sons of God. All right? Uh, I want you to see that. Let me make sure I drive that point home. What, What drove the sons of God, whether they be angels or the godly line of Seth, to go after the daughters of men was a lustfulness after their attractiveness. So whether they're angels or whether the godly line of Seth, the, the issue here is that they are, they are attracted to and lusting after them, which was the sin of Samson, which was the sin of David. So even though we can't be dogmatic as to who these people are, we understand why God said, I'm not going to strive with men forever. The ungodliness of this culture, God will say, and its sexual uh, passions and immorality, I will not deal with much longer. Again, we, we get sometimes too hung up on who the players are and forget the sin. The sin is a driving, lustful passion that God said, I, I'm not... We're not going to put up with that any longer. God is angered and judgment must come. God promised that judgment would be preceded by 120 years of patient waiting 
The Lord said, my spirit will not strive with man. This is verse 3, forever. He's indeed flesh, but his days will be 120 years. And in verses 8 through 10, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So, um, any questions about, and you can speculate, maybe you have another theory. I think we missed the point when we get too caught up in the theory. Something is going on here in the, the sexual perversion of the culture that, that God says I cannot deal with any longer. Again, wow, <laughs> 2019, all right? So, I mean, yeah, Dennis? Yeah. <laughs> um, here he's talking about humanity. He's not talking about an individual. I think there's lots of things that come into play. There's the, the, the unpardonable sin. There's Hebrews 6. If you sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a, a simple, short answer. If you get to the point or I get to the point that God says, I'll not strive with you anymore. Yes, you're done. I think that's the answer where that point comes. That's the, that's the issue. But if a person is still being convicted, what's who, who does the work of conviction? It's the Holy spirit. So obviously they've not reached that point. So I do think that there's a stern message here. There is a time when God says enough is enough and, and he backs away. So Okay, obviously, I was aspirational in thinking I would finish the second lesson today, too. But um, we will finish one. I'm, I'm feeling really good about finishing one in two weeks. So, um, so now we move on to the flood. All right, so God says, I'm not going to strive forever. He chooses Noah. Um, and and we're not, you know this story fairly well. We're not going to read a lot of text here. But Noah follows God's instructions to build the ark. Uh, the ark becomes a shelter for his family and the representative animals that will fill the ark. Um, in almost a year on the ark, and humanity is destroyed to bring divine judgment on the earth and to start a new people. Again, to move toward um, a godly seed. So um, they come off, they come off the uh, ark, and there is. A new start. Okay, well, I can read you that story. You want, you want to see that story? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll show it to you. So let's go to chapter 8 and verse 20. Um, chapter 8 and verse 20. They come off the ark, and Noah builds an altar to the Lord, and he takes every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy everything, every living thing as I've done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. Um, really don't know that I want to read all of these verses, but let, let, let me, so God blessed Noah. Uh, he told him to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And he tells him that the fear of, of the fear, the animals will fear him. Um, and now he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I've given you all things, verse three, like green herbs, uh, but do not eat flesh with its life that is its blood this is different now prior to coming off the ark they couldn't eat meat at all uh, but now they can eat meat just don't eat it with the blood still in it all right uh, so those of you who like rare steaks uh, i'm sorry about your luck i'm a well-done guy myself so um so but there is a new commitment to populate the earth vegetation and properly slaughtered meats are now uh, ordained for food. And so he gives them this new promise. Uh, verse 8, God spoke to Noah and to his sons, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, the beasts of the earth with you, and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. And I'll establish my covenant with you and never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you uh, for perpetual generations. I will set my rainbow in the cloud 
and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the rainbow shall be set in the cloud, and I will look on it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. And this is the sign, verse 17, of the covenant. He says that again. The rainbow was hijacked by the LGBTQ community. Uh, And I think there's other letters after that now, I'm sure. Um, the, The rainbow was God's sign of God's covenant that he would never destroy the earth again by way of the flood. Now, um, I want to answer, look at verse 20 of chapter 9, Kathy. And Noah began to be a farmer. Sure, yes. Oh, yeah, they would. Absolutely. Well, and and they get the command to populate the earth. And so, yeah, they once again will have to marry their sisters. Yep. (laughs) Your sister must be a real dud, Rick, the way you just shook your head. (laughs) Oh, your Rick was like, oh. (laughs) Okay. All I know is the look on your face. It just it. All right. Now, can I move on to Noah being a drunk? Is that okay? All right. And so Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and was drunk and he became uncovered or naked in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and he told, and, and the implication here is Ham just thought, <laughs> Look at dad. He's making a fool of himself. And he went and told his brothers. But Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their fathers. Their faces were turned away uh, because they did not see their father's nakedness. They wanted to respect their father, Ham, uh, who will later be cursed uh, because of that. Or at least the implication is because of that. Um, Ham was excited about his father's sin, but that's, that's the text that speaks of his drunkenness. All right. So now we get to uh, letter B number four, uh, the human race was a racial and a linguistic unit. All right. They were all the same, same race, same language. Um, Genesis 10 is this is a little odd, and, and you can roll your eyes if you want. This is just the way it is. Um, there is a summary given in Genesis 10. It's called the Table of Nations. And the sense of almost every scholar is that chapter 10 is a summary or a record of the dispersion after Babel, where everybody, where everybody went after Babel. So... Um, we're not really deal with chapter 10. It's really just a long genealogy and, and it tells you where people, where uh, are, <laughs> that's fine. Um, so chapter 10 is really just a discussion of, of where everyone landed. So let's focus our attention on chapter 11, which describes the dispersion. The whole earth, chapter 11 and verse one had one language and one speech. So that's why I said they were a linguistic unit came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Little hint. In chapter 12, when God calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you a great name, all right? But that came from the promise of God, not by self-ingenuity. They're trying to do it themselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, indeed, the people are one. They all have one language. This is what they will begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. 
Therefore, the name, its name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. From there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. And that would be, that scattering abroad would be what you would see in chapter 10, where they all went when he scattered them abroad. So Babel is the dispersion. Um, They're trying to become like God. They're trying to make a name for themselves. God says, we're going to go down and we're going to confuse the language and they're going to they're going to be scattered and in chapter 10 again the picture of their scattering from here on out and this is where we're going to we're going to slowly move probably take 4 or 5 minutes and we'll be done i'm not going to try to tackle lesson 2 um but from here on there is going to be a narrowing down let me um see if i can set us up for this point so the, the story starts with Adam or uh, one man. And then it, it grows from there to um, really a people, a humanity um, in Noah's day. A whole world that's wicked and out of control. So we grow from Adam to this. And then from the ark, we have eight. And out of what's going to happen now, and this is where we're going we're gonna to go. From eight, he has three sons. And the first one is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And these two will be quickly dismissed. And the story is going to flow from the, the one we're going to go, be back again to one, and the story is going to flow from this one all the way through Abraham, uh, through Isaac, Jacob, uh, through Judah, one of the tribes of Jacob, uh, and then Jesus, of course, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So now there's going to be kind of a focused end. So let's go to chapter 11 and verse 10. Uh, this is the genealogy of Shem, all right? This is the one that's going to be focused on. Um, I'm not going to read you that genealogy lest I butcher a lot of names in the process, okay? Um, but but we're going to get down to, um, look at verse number, let's start, I'm going to pick one randomly, um, verse 22. Sarag lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor, and notice there's a whole lot not listed there. So that kind of goes to what I was talking about earlier. We have no idea how many are in between. Uh, now, Nahor um, lived 29 years, and he begot Terah. This is where we really want to focus our attention. So Nahor, keep in mind, who comes from this line, Shem, Nahor begot Terah. All right, let's um, read on. Um, he lived 29 years, begot Terah. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and he begot sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and he begot Abram. Abram. Um, make sure I get the spellings of these right. Um, Nahor and Haran. He also begot a Nahor and a Haran. So Terah has three sons. All right. Um, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And by the way, Haran begets Lot, who will be part of the picture here soon. Um, And Haran died before his father Terah in the native land of the Ur of Chaldees. So Lot's father, Haran, dies, all right, while they're still living. This family of Terah is still living in the Ur of Chaldees. That's where this family lives. And Haran, one of the three brothers, dies, all right? Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, Sarai. It changes later, all right? Um, The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. 
the daughter of Iran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. Look at verse 30. But Sarah, look at this, is barren. Now this comes in huge in the story, doesn't it? Sarah is barren. She had no child. Terah now takes his son Abram. Terah takes Abram and his grandson Lot. So we've got Terah, Abram, his family, and Lot. He takes them um, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, which I just said. He takes them and his son, Abram's wife, and they went out with them from the Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran, the place, and they dwelt there. And so they get to a place, they leave the Ur of Chaldees, they get to a place called Haran, and Terah dies. Where's Terah? There he is. So now in Haran, we have Abram and Lot. Abram and Sarah and Lot and his family. Okay, that's the end of Genesis 11. Days of Terah were 200 in five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the story of a nation, a single nation. We started with a man. We went to a whole people. We narrowed down to one family, one descendant of that family. And now we have, we have one seed, and the story of the nation is going to begin. All right? Let me um, give you three takeaways and then any questions that you might have. Number one... In, in lesson one, three main takeaways. And I want you to see, first of all, that God responds to human failure with grace. All right? That's an important lesson. He did so with the fall. When they fell, there is a seed that is coming. When they were naked, he clothed them. All right? God responds. When there was a flood, there's a rainbow. There's the blessing of Shem. And we will get to chapter 12 when there's Babel, there's going to be the promise that's given to Abraham in chapter 12. So God responds to human failure with grace. Aren't we all thankful for that, right? He doesn't just write us off. He responds with grace. Secondly, I want you to notice what I call the order-disorder motif. It's kind of back and forth. Um, there, there was disorder. The earth was chaotic, without form and void, and God spoke, and there was order. All right. There is the fall. We're naked. God covers with skins and brings order. There was the flood. Everything was discombobulated. There is the rainbow that brings order. There is the confusion of Babel, disorder, chaos, and then there's going to be this one family. So there's kind of a back and forth between chaos and disorder and order. And then the third thing that I want you to notice is... Um, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run you through these scriptures and we'll be done. Go back to Genesis 3.15. Real quickly with me, Genesis 3.15. I want you to notice the promised seed. This is, kind of goes back to what Kathy said, but it's all the way through these first few chapters. You know Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Look at chapter 4 in verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. So there's hope in this seed. Um, in verse 2, she bore again, this time his brother Abel. And Abel was the keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Look at verse 25 of chapter 4. Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son named him Seth. Look at what she says. God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. Then we get to chapter 9, uh, verses 21 through 27. It's the blessing of the three sons. I won't read those to you, but the three sons of Noah with the primary blessing and focus being on, on Shem. And then we get to what we just read, chapters 11, 27 through uh, chapter 12. Let, let, let's read chapter 12 and verse number three. Let's just read the first three verses. The Lord said to Abram, this is where we'll start next week. Get out of your country, from your family, 
from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. That's what the people of Babel wanted. God says, I'll do it for you, Abraham. Um, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you or in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So um, this is where we'll pick up. We made it through the first 11 chapters. Um, the story of the birth of a nation is going to begin with Abraham. Any questions, comments? Uh, you can take, if you want to look ahead, you can take a lesson two with you, um, or you can just leave them there and we'll have, we'll have more next week. Uh, but we will start in on lesson two uh, next Wednesday. All right. God bless you. Thank you.